Well, we decided to kick off 2023 uh, by diving into a, a document that has been curated and stored for us in our New Testaments, uh, the letter from Paul to the church in Philippi. We have tried to abstain from calling it the book of Philippians, like it's actually titled probably on the title page of your Bible, uh, because uh, we really think that it's really important and it brings life and color and dimension to the scriptures when we understand the genre of literature that we're actually reading. That Philippians was a letter written by a guy named Paul to an audience, to a group of people, uh, the church in Philippi. And I think that it actually helps us live out the story that God has given us in the Bible when we understand these things and read the Bible literally. And so we understand that we're reading a letter. We're reading someone else's mail when we're reading Philippians together. So to recap where we've been, uh, this letter is written by a guy named Paul. And Paul at one point wanted to stop Christianity. He thought it was a nuisance and he thought that it was something that was gonna be dangerous to his Jewish faith. Until one day he had an awakening on this journey that he was taking to where he actually got confronted by the resurrected Jesus. And Jesus goes, Paul or Saul, why are you persecuting me? I want you to turn your life in a different direction. I want you to tell everyone everybody about me, Jew, Gentile, everybody about me. And so Paul goes on a journey to where he starts starting these things called churches in the first century. He'd go to places where they never heard about Jesus. And he would build up leaders and start these congregations and gatherings. And he'd move on to another place. And he did this through um, so much of the New Testament. He actually uh, pinned letters to these churches from various places. And that actually is two-thirds of our New Testament are the writings of Paul to these congregations that he loved, led, and served. One of those places was a church in a place called Philippi. And no, it's not like the beautiful beach vista of going to the Philippines. It sounds so exotic. No, this was a place called Philippi. That was a Roman colony. And this was a place where there were a bunch of Roman citizens, a bunch of people that were not really religious or Jewish in any way, shape, or form. Um, but they, were, they had been taken by this Jesus story and this message of Jesus that Paul gave them. So they started to build this little faith community in the middle of this Roman colony. <laughs> Paul, as he started that church and he goes to some other place and starts another church there, but all over the place, you see in the New Testament, Paul gets thrown into prison. They keep locking Paul up because Paul won't shut up about Jesus and the resurrection. Paul won't go with the party line, the common line in the Roman Empire saying that Caesar is Lord and Caesar is Savior. Paul was going around and he had the audacity to say that no, Caesar's not Lord. This carpenter's son, this renegade rabbi from the backwaters of the Roman empire who you crucified is Lord of the universe. And people started to believe it. It started to change people's lives. And so the Roman empire threw him into prison. And that's actually where Paul writes this letter to his friends in Philippi. And it's this letter full of joy, full of challenge, full of this message saying, don't march to the drum of your culture. March to the drum of the Lord Jesus. He actually, just to recap a little bit, chapter one, he had this beautiful summation in verse 27 of chapter one, writing to his friends. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, this would have been a common phrase that Roman citizens would understand because they were told in their laws to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Rome, 
of Caesar. Live your life, do as the Romans do. Do everything like them and worship Caesar. Paul flips it on his head. He's a little punk rocker. And he's like, oh no, you take this phrase, but I want you to live your life in in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, the king. He's the real king. So he challenges us, he challenges them to live your life, not just marching to the beat of whatever culture says, but to live your life under King Jesus and his kingdom. Chapter two, he says, you know what's really important is not just your vertical relationship between you and the divine, but actually your horizontal relationships matter a lot to God. And so in verse five of chapter two, Paul gives this challenge. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. When you interact with people, with difficult people, with your in-laws, with your boss, with Karen in the next cubicle over, like whatever it might be, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then Paul breaks into this beautiful ancient poem that it's believed that early Jesus followers would memorize and recite when they gathered together for their services. And it was this idea of Jesus' life had how he handled power and privilege and prestige and he laid it all down. He emptied himself of it to become a servant, to be humble and ultimately to sacrifice himself for us. He says, have that mindset, have that attitude, have those goggles on as you see all people in your horizontal relationships. Then in chapter three, he's giving them all these handles for what it looks like to live this out. In another summation verse, he says this in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, there's a way to just live as a citizen of wherever you are, but you're called to a higher citizenship. Your citizenship is in heaven. And we talked last week why this passage and this concept has just captured my heart and my life because growing up hearing this, that my citizenship is in heaven, I thought, I don't belong here. Life's hard, this stinks, but one day I'm gonna get evacuated right up to heaven and everything's gonna be great. I just gotta hold on because life right here stinks. I thought that's what it was about. But citizenship in the first century was not ever someone like who's gonna go back to Rome. Citizenship was your responsibility to spread a certain culture, to spread the heartbeat, to spread the values of where you're a citizen of, where you are right here and now. So to be a citizen of heaven, Paul is saying your duty, your call is this invitation from God to bring the stuff of heaven, the heartbeat of God, his values, and let it flood our streets, our homes, our schools, our workplaces. And we say around here at Bridgeway to partner with God to bring the up there down here in our everyday life. He calls us to be citizens of heaven. And today, as we land the plane and Paul lands the plane in his letter to his friends, uh, he, he talks about um, internal practices. He talks about the things of our mind and how to set our mind. He talks about some practices that will shape us and form us more into being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and not just going with the flow. But Paul gets pastoral. Paul becomes this like shepherd leader and he sees people that are struggling and being oppressed by the Roman government. And he says, this is how you actually shape your minds in the way of Christ and live as a kingdom citizen. And it starts up here in our mind. I was thinking this last week, isn't it an amazing thing that our minds can change? Like we might think that we're like stuck in our ways, but you think back to some of, the th- some of those things that you liked, some of those things that you did when you were like a toddler or a middle schooler to today, you see the world, you think differently about things, right? I mean, just for me in silly ways, like ketchup. When I was a little kid, I wanted to put ketchup on everything. Ketchup was like the only dip 
ever. Mustard, disgusting, ketchup, ketchup, ketchup on everything. And I think my toddler, who Thomas, who's almost two, has picked this up too. He just always wants a dip on his tray for every meal. And so he just goes dip, 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 dip. And so we have to put some, in. he loves ketchup. And he'll dip anything in ketchup. I mean, anything. Uh, he, <laughs> the other day he had some apple slices and he just gets ketchup, dip, 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 apple, dip. And we're like, no, stop it. And it's like cute and disgusting, which is just how you describe life with toddlers, right? Cute and disgusting all at the same time. But there was a time when I was like, ketchup was the only thing. I think about coffee. Like when I was younger, and I don't know what it is about us in our biology, but like coffee doesn't taste good to younger people, to kids, right? I mean, it's like weird and why bean water? What are you doing? But something clicked inside of me when I was in college to where now when I get out of bed, sometimes it's why I get out of bed. Uh, and like now I look at my coffee mug and I like pull that little whole Jack Nicholson thing. And I'm like, you make me a better man. Like, it's like something I can't imagine doing life without. I love it. Guacamole is another thing, right? I used to never want to have anything to do with guacamole because, you know, look at it. Can we just be real? Like, look at it. Weird, gross. What are we actually doing? But now I'm like, put it on a burger, put it on anything. I'm all down with guacamole. I think about Harry Potter. I used to, when I was younger, uh, this is the last one I'll do. I could do this all day, probably. But... <laughs> When I was younger, uh, and I would, I would like make fun of people that loved Harry Potter, I'm like wizards and warlocks, and you know what? What is this all about? Witches? Like this is so dumb. And then I like read the first book, and I had to pick up the second book. And by the end of the seventh book, I remember walking around our first apartment, like bumping into walls because I was trying not to fall asleep, but I need to finish the Battle of Hogwarts. And I was like so obsessed with it, right? Like some, your mind can change about so many things, and our minds change all the time and form us to be who we are. But not only can our minds change about something. Do you guys know that our brains can actually physically change and they do physically change? Our brains are powerful supercomputers inside of our heads. And uh, I just know in the last 20 years, we are like breaking into this new frontier of science, uh, neuroscience and understanding our brains. And I don't know very much. Uh, I know enough just to be dangerous. So I'm gonna be reading some of these amazing things about our brains. I mean, did you know that if you took all the blood vessels in your brain and stretched them end to end, they would be about 100,000 miles long? Yeah, that's four times around the equator, you guys. That's how long it is. Like in your tiny head, ladies, in your husband's head, there's that much going on. Like, think about that. Our brains have roughly 100 billion neurons and connectors, and each neuron can make 250,000 connections, a quarter million connections. That means there are more potential connections between neurons in your brain than there are stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Our brains are complex, but our brains are also malleable. They change, they adapt, and we're learning more about this. Our brains grow over nine months in our mother's womb at a rate of 250,000 nerve cells per minute. That's what's going on when we're in our mother's womb. And those vast networks of vessels and neurons are literally being shaped and reshaped at a rapid pace today, each and every day. This idea of our neurons rewiring and repatching and connecting, it's actually this new study called neuroplasticity. And in neuroplasticity, it refers to our brain's ability to modify, change, and adapt both its structure, like literally the structure, and the function of our lives every day, throughout our lives, in our brains. And this is why this is so important today for us to understand that we can change our mind about things, but our brains are changing as well. We are being shaped and formed every single day by what we take in, what we sit and think about, what we savor, what we experience, what we stay away from. We are being shaped and formed every single day. The question is not, will we change? The question is, who will change us and what will we be transformed into by our decisions? 
With all this background, Paul, as he gets pastoral in the last chapter of this letter, he talks about practices that shape us and form us both internally and with our lives that form us into being a citizen of heaven, to be a citizen of God's kingdom and not just going with the flow of what our culture is up to. So as is ancient practice, when these letters would arrive in these early Christian homes and they would have somebody read them out loud, I wanna read this whole chunk of scripture that we're gonna look at today just in one swoop and then we'll come back and we'll break it down and hopefully bring a lot of understanding and application from it. But here's what chapter four of Philippians, starting in verse, verse four says. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Amen, we can just go home, right? We all understand. That's all easy peasy stuff, right? But let's go back and let's go back to the very first phrase he said. Let's break this down and try to see these practices that are gonna form us inside of this teaching from Paul. He begins and he says this in verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. What the heck does that mean to rejoice, right? This is not a word we go around saying all the time. Like rejoice, am I supposed to just be like happy all the time and breaking into a dance? It's like rejoice what you like do when you see the eggs on sale at the grocery store. Like that's what it is. I found the eggs. Half off. What's it mean to rejoice? It's, it's not language that we use often. I actually got a lot of understanding from this this week in my study, looking at what a New Testament scholar N.T. Wright has to say about this passage and this word. It illuminated it in beautiful ways for me. He says this, he says, we normally understand that word today as meaning something that happens inside people, the rejoice, something that happens inside of people, a sense of joy welling up and making them happy from within. All that is important and is contained within Paul's command, but in his world and culture, this rejoicing would have meant what we would call public celebration. The world all around in these other Roman colonies in Ephesus, Philippi, Corinth, and elsewhere used to organize great festivals, games, and shows to celebrate their gods and their cities, not least the new god, Caesar himself, that everybody was called to worship. Why shouldn't the followers of King Jesus celebrate exuberantly? It's only right, and celebrating Jesus as Lord encourages and strengthens loyalty and obedience to him. This idea of rejoicing, it leads them, you understanding their context and understanding the pressures that they were under and how they felt like they had to probably be quiet about it because of social pressures and pressures from the Roman Empire. It leads to a practice, a choice, I would say, that you and I have every single day. And I'll just, we'll just call it this, that Paul encourages them to choose to celebrate, choose to worship, choose to say hallelujah anyway, in the face of whatever is going on. Choose to celebrate. Paul's inviting them and us to practice this because it shapes us and it forms us. And like, go back to what Paul says. He says, rejoice always, like always. Like, can we just be real? Like from these first century followers who are probably reading this quietly, 
always, like really in the face of persecution, in the face of like, we're not supposed to be doing this publicly. Like we're, you know, we're marching to the beat of the drum of Jesus, not Caesar. And it's a little dangerous. Paul's like, yeah, yeah, I want you to rejoice always. And it does something in you. And I think back like to our lives and our time and just my life, like you're saying like always for me to have this posture of rejoicing and celebrating always for me because sometimes Paul, life sucks. Life is hard. Sometimes like you, things happen like a toddler meltdown to where they just have to put their laundry like here to here and 30 minutes later, it's still not there and they're melting down, mommy, mommy. And I'm just sitting here like, Bruh. like. Am I alone? Sorry, this seems like therapy for me for a second. <laughs> you have car problems. You have people problems and you know, disappointments and betrayals from people. Like I'm supposed to like, have a spirit of celebration? Really, Paul? I think Paul would say, yeah, choose to do it. Because, not because God needs your worship or it changes anything with God, but it does something in you. Because hear me, Paul, like, he makes room for lament. Paul makes room in his life. He actually talks about how he's worried and how he's got anxiety at certain times. But he says, but even when I choose it, it does something in me when I focus and recenter myself on who God is and what God says about me. It changes everything. It's this practice to choose to celebrate, choose to worship anyway. And when I think about this, it's hard from my, like, my experience um, to understand the transformative power of this sometimes. Um, but I think about people that have been shaped by choosing to celebrate. Anyway, I think about um, black Christians. I think about African-American Christians just over the last 200 years. These are Christians who, in the face of oppression, of slavery, of exclusion and segregation and still systemic issues that lock them out, worship has been the center of their church and their movement. And them as people from the very, very beginning, and it's changed them. James Cone, who's a black theologian, he said this about the power and the centrality of worship in the black story of Christianity. He says this, in the act of worship itself, the experience of liberation becomes a constituent of the community's being. It is the power of God's spirit invading the lives of the people, building them up where they are torn down and propping them up on every leaning side. Even when life is terrible, to come back to worship and celebrating this king, it, it does something, James Cone would say. It, it props us up, it builds us up where we are torn down. It reminds us of what's ultimately true, that we are loved and that we are gonna be free can I just make a, a, a pastor confession to you? Like, this is like reverse confessional a little bit. Sometimes on Saturday night, sometimes when my alarm goes off early on Sunday mornings, I have a thought. I don't want to go to church today. Seriously, sometimes that's there. Sometimes I get here and I don't want to sing the songs. Sometimes I've been so hit by maybe personal stuff going on in my life or, oh gosh, just the news, another mass shooting, another mass shooting in California, 29-year-old man in Memphis. And we're singing songs about God's kingdom is coming, God's kingdom is here. And I'm like, yeah, I wanna, yeah, is it? And it's hard. I don't feel like it. But then there are moments like I had down here at the 845 server this morning when I was singing that second song, the last song we were singing. 
says that God's kingdom is coming, God's kingdom is here, alive in our waiting, our work, and our tears. And I needed to put it on my lips because I need to believe it again because I, I don't see it sometimes. And I choose it anyway, and it does some transformative thing inside of me. Paul encourages us, even when we don't feel like it, choose to celebrate, choose to worship, fake it till you make it. Because God sometimes does something when you don't feel like it, he does his best work. He transforms us, he builds us up, he props us up on every side, as Cone would say. Choose to celebrate any way. Next thing that Paul says, the very next verse he says in his pastoral final thoughts for his friends, he says this, let your gentleness be evident to all because the Lord is near. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Let's talk about gentleness, right? Uh, Gentleness is something as a a man, like I, I always think we juxtapose that. We think that's weakness. You're not supposed to be gentle. That's not superhero stuff. That's not Batman things. Like what are we talking about? Gentleness be evident to all people? Like, what are we talking about? And there's this interesting thing because we hear gentleness and we immediately go to weakness. We go to like this like shrinking down reality. But if you look at the actual original word that's used for gentleness, it is power packed with meaning. It is the last thing to consider gentleness, weakness at all. It's actually the Greek word uh, epi case. And epi case, here's the definition of gentleness It's not insisting on your own rights, not bent on retaliation when you have been harmed, meeting resistance with an attitude of kindness. Epi case, gentleness, not bent on getting even, not bent on winning. Gentleness, and let your gentleness be evident to all people. Now, I feel like often I, I'm, I'm pretty good. It's natural for me to be gentle with a child, with a little one, someone who is vulnerable, someone who has been taken advantage of, or they need me, they need protection. I'm good at being gentle with them. I am not good at being gentle when people come at me with harshness. Can I be real with you? Like gentleness is not my first response. Like I try to meet that energy and we just go into this crazy up the ante thing where they say something cutting and I'm like, well, I'll cut you even deeper and then boom, 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 boom. And you're through the roof with like anxiety and stress and retaliation. Gentleness though is meeting that resistance with kindness. It's not being bent on winning the argument, winning the fight. And then check what uh, he says here about gentleness. Let's go back to what he says. He says uh, this, let your gentleness be evident to all, like to all people, to your in-laws, to that neighbor, to that coworker, to that parent who is coaching your kid and they're not playing your kids the time that you want, like all those different kind of things where it's hard. Paul's saying like, let your gentleness be evident when it's hard. Actually, you're not truly gentle if you're only gentle when it's easy. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all people because the Lord is near. You know what happens when we choose to employ harshness? Is what we do is we diminish the image of God on another person's life. We actually diminish the image of God on our lives. We forget that every single person we've ever come in contact with was made in God's image. God's thumbprint is on their life and they were created good and God loves them and he sent Jesus to set them free and to be reminded of that. And when we play harshness, we don't see them the way that God does. Let me ask you a couple questions. Like, what do you do 
when someone is harsh to your kid, what comes out in you, mama bear? When they're harsh with your kid, how do you feel? How do you think God feels when we're harsh to his kids? What do you think comes out in God's heart when we're harsh to the children that he loves? Let me ask you another question. How can you be reminded of how God was gentle to you when you were harsh and when you were running in a different direction, when you're looking for love in all the wrong places, when you're harming people in the process? It's still his kindness that draws you back, isn't it? It's not harshness ever. Let's be people that choose gentleness, choose to be gentle to other people, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it does something in us and it spreads his kingdom instead of upping the ante with harshness over and over and over again. It ends the cycle and it actually creates something beautiful in the process. Next, Paul says this. Do not be anxious about anything. Memory verse alert, memory verse alert, Hobby Lobby sign alert, Hobby Lobby sign alert. <laughs> Do not be anxious about anything. Before we go any farther, can I, can I just say, um, I love this passage, but I've seen this passage weaponized to push down people, to make them feel if they're dealing with any kind of anxiety, depression, any mental illness, that they are spiritually deficient and that there's something wrong with them. You don't need anything. You just need to pray more, read your Bible more, go to church more. I've seen this Bible passage weaponized in this way and you you can tell how it makes me feel. Hear me, my friends. If you struggle with anxiety and depression and, and you are just like debilitated by it, um, man, we would love to encourage you to like talk to your doctor about ways that can make it better. There is no shame in this at all. You are not spiritually deficient. We all have different imbalances in different ways. And we want you to not just limp through life mentally. We want you to thrive mentally. So do not let anybody use this to tear down your mental health journey, please. This is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not talking about a chemical imbalance. Paul is talking about the everyday anxieties that we face the what if scenarios we run down, the fear of that, oh, this meeting's coming up. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? What are they gonna say? Like all these different kind of things, waiting for the phone call, waiting for the email from the doctor. It's the everyday kind of anxieties that just weigh us down. And what Paul is saying here is there's a practice. There's a choice that you can make, that I can make that's not natural, but it will form you into being a kingdom citizen is this. Here's the choice. Choose to release your anxiety to God. I want you to consider this possibility that we are carrying so many what ifs, so many things to be anxious about, so many worst case scenarios that they are weighing us down. They're weighing you down and you weren't created to carry it. You were not created to carry the weight of all of your anxious thoughts and feelings. It's not a deficiency. It's just not in your function. We have a heavenly father who wants us to Release, release these anxieties to him to offload them to him so that we can be free and not feel so weighed down. Look at what Paul says again in this passage. He says this, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He says this, offload these <laughs> Bring them to him, let go of them, talk to him about it. Petition, like tell him things you want to be changed. Present your request to God because he's a good heavenly father and he might change those things, but I guarantee what he will do, he'll change you in the process. 
This means talking to him about your anxious thoughts, praying to him. And it doesn't have to be in a fancy place at all, like a church or a chapel, like when you're driving to the appointment, before you're in the meeting, in the shower, it doesn't matter. Just bring it to him because he's a good heavenly father who wants you to not be weighed down by the everyday what-ifs and anxious thoughts that we might have. Just this last Friday, um, I, I had a, a call on Monday. If you guys don't know, we, we're in the process of, we've purchased uh, a land across the street. We're in the process of uh, getting a down payment together and you know, getting the ground broke across the street for a new home for us as a church. And we had some different numbers come through and some things that we weren't expecting. And so I needed to meet with our banker, our loan officer, about looking at how we could amortize this, whatever that word, can't say it right, uh, differently to make it all work for us. And I, and he couldn't meet until Friday afternoon. And like all week long, this meeting was hanging right here. And I'm like, what's he going to say? Is he going to say, we can't work with you? Is he going to say, well, good luck someplace else? Is he going to say, you guys are crazy? What are you doing? Like, oh, this is just hanging in front of me all week long. My wife would be like, what's going on? I'm like, this meeting on Friday. It was just there. And then I come here about 10 minutes before the meeting and I'm just walking around the auditorium. And I thought, hey, why don't you try to practice what you preach, boss? Good idea, right? And so I, I did. I just started like out loud talking to God. Like, God, I'm stressed about this. Like, I don't know what this is gonna be, what this is gonna mean for us. Did we make a mistake? Did I make a mistake? Where are we at? What's going on? All this kind of stuff. And I, I thank God for leading us to where we were. I thank God for leading me. And it, it recentered me in a way. I felt lighter. And I went into that meeting and I was just like I was talking to a friend about big numbers. This is what can happen when we actually release our anxiety to God. It actually frees us. And again, just one more time, if you struggle with any kind of chemical imbalance, this is not what we're talking about. We hope that you would seek health, help and health through counseling and through talking to your doctor. But there's everyday what ifs and anxieties. We don't have to be weighed down by them, my friends. We gotta do something with them, right? Paul, he, he knows this because he, he, he says next, the very next verse, he says these words, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. If you're gonna remove these thoughts from your mind, you need to think about these kind of things. It's input and output in our brains, what we're putting out and what we're picking up, Right? And he, he says this, which is this beautiful uh, thing, but it's, it's a challenge for us. Like we think about the things that we're taking into thoughts, the things that we're setting our minds on. I mean, a few years ago, Apple came out with that app screen time to tell you how long you're spending on your phone and how many app, what apps you're spending all the time on. And I just promptly turned it off because I didn't like being shamed like that, Apple. <laughs> but you think about the things that we're taking in, the media that we're consuming every day, like news headlines or story, political stories from our silos, from our political persuasion, making an enemy of the other side, streaming and binging shows that shock us, clickbait articles that leave us outraged and how dare they all the time, looking at our friends on social media and getting caught in the comparison trap where we're never gonna measure up to their highlights because we're still in our pajamas on Saturday, right? And then we wonder why we're anxious, fearful, and always in a bad mood. Because what are we setting our minds to, Right? I love what Martin Luther, the reformer, said about anxiety and about our minds. He said this, this is so great. You cannot keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. You picking up what Luther's putting down here? He says, you can't stop the crazy stuff from happening. You can't stop the hard things from being around you and happening in life, but you can 
You know, you can't stop what lands and takes residency up in your mind rent-free. You can be the air traffic controller to make sure that those things are out there, but they're not gonna land here. And this is what Paul is getting at. He's like, I want you to think about things that are actually going to set you free after you leave the anxiety to me. Think about things that actually bring beautiful things to your life. And here's the practice that I think he's talking about. He says, choose to focus on the good. Choose to focus about the good in your life and in the world around us. You're gonna focus on something, so focus on what is good, beautiful, praiseworthy, and excellent. I think he's challenging us to practice gratitude, to sit and savor and think about the things that are amazing that we so often take for granted. Gratitude is one of the most powerful tools in our arsenal and lives, and we rarely rhythmically employ it, my friends. Gratitude is so amazing. I mean, it creates more serotonin in your brains. It, it releases more pathways to dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in our brain. You talk about neuroplasticity and how our brains are always being shaped and changed. It rewires more and more pathways um, to, so where our brains experience more and more gratitude. It's like a muscle. The more we look for it, the more we see it. And we, this happens over and over and over again. Studies show that people that practice gratitude lead to having more energy, feeling less overwhelmed, more resilient through challenges, and it leads to a spirit of gentleness towards other people. Gratitude is so powerful, but we've also got to understand this, that we're in a battle to be grateful every single day because our brains aren't predisposed to look for the good. Uh, Some neuroscientists will say this, that our brains have a negativity bias. This is like fascinating to me because I just see it play out all the time, that your brain and my brain just naturally, it has a negativity bias to where good ex- or bad experiences, bad memories, bad thoughts that we have, they stick to our brains like Velcro. It's like so easy for a negative thought to stick to our brain because it's driven by fear, it's driven by what if and anxiety. Negative, bad thoughts stick to our brains like Velcro, but good thoughts, they slide right off of our brains like Teflon. Neuroscientists say that we need to focus on beautiful, good things, good experiences three times more to sit and savor in them so that they actually stick to our minds and they reshape us. We have to fight to be grateful, to focus on the good, but it changes us, my friends. It helps us see more and more good in the world and other people in the life that God has given us. Focus on the good. I remember back in uh, the very beginning of COVID, back when we were calling it the coronavirus, you know, March, April, May, 2020, we call that the Tiger King era of the pandemic. But we're all stuck at home. We're all like wiping down our groceries and Amazon packages, not knowing if we'd ever get to see our families again, all those kind of things that we were living in. Um, But I remember on, we had just started the church. We'd had one weekend of services and shut the whole thing down. And uh, and I remember on Fridays, we posted on our Facebook group, Bridgeway Kokomo Community. We just called it a gratefulness challenge where we encourage people at home just to put a picture, share a few words about something that you're grateful for. And we'd have 30, 40 people, you know, sharing pictures of their kids, their dogs, their comfy blanket, their frozen pizza that they were going to enjoy at lunch, like all these different things. And it's just like, you know, me saying something and seeing other people's responses, it did change the way I looked at everything during an anxious time. If we choose to look at the good, we will find it. I heard a spiritual teacher say once, what you look for, you will find. And I think it's so true because it rewires our brains. Lastly, Paul says this as a summation here to his friends in Philippi. He says, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice 
and the God of peace will be with you. In other words, we can talk about this stuff all day long, but you know how the God of peace, the God of shalom, the God of everything in its right place and harmony and fullness, you know how he guards you and he's with you is when you actually put this stuff into practice, where you say, I'm not content just to talk about it. I'm gonna be about it. I wanna be formed in the way of Jesus so that I march to his drum, not just what our culture is doing. So here are those four practices he talks about that we discussed this morning, to choose to celebrate, choose to worship, choose to show up, to, to pray, to like sing, to sit in a posture of learning anyway, even when life is awful, even when it's not easy. Choose gentleness, to not power up when you interact with harshness, but to like see the image of God on everyone and remember how God was gentle to you and slow down and see them the way that God sees them. Choose to release your anxiety to God. Those everyday what ifs and challenges, don't carry them, white knuckle them and try to do it on your own, but release them to him, tell him about it. And then to replace that space where you release your anxieties with focusing on the good, to be grateful keeping a gratefulness journal or making it a practice every morning to write down and focus and savor on some things that you're grateful for, man, it will change us. This is the kind of stuff that Paul was telling his friends and I think he's telling us. (laughs) This is the stuff that forms us, shapes us into being a kingdom of God person. This is the stuff that does it and that's the invitation Let me ask you a question as we close this series and this morning out. Let me play Dr. Phil for a moment. How's playing by our culture's game working for us? How's like going along with the flow of what our culture says is important and how we interact and how we order our lives? How's it working for us? We're the most stressed out, anxious, disconnected, unsatisfied culture that we've ever seen in America. I think it's a beautiful invitation to push up against the way that we're seeing laid out to us and say, no, we're going to go team Jesus. We're going to go all in and give our allegiance to Jesus and live a life that's worthy, the manner of the gospel of our King, Jesus, above Democrat, above Republican, above all the different dividing lines we're saying, they're like the kingdom of Jesus. And I'm a citizen of that kingdom because this stuff will play out of our hearts and our lives. And this is stuff that actually changes the world. That's our invitation. Are you in? Will you step up to the plate and go on the journey? Because I'm not arrived, but I'm on the journey. I'd love for you guys to come with us.